lesson this morning comes from Daniel, uh, chapter 2, verses 26 through 45. Welcome to join along in, the, in your Bible, or there are the Red Pew Bibles for you to use as well. That's Daniel, chapter 2. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Sorry, that is the only weird word in this whole passage. I just want you to know that. Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind." You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept through them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, born of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, For iron breaks and smashes everything, and an iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron and bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces.
the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, I pray that you would be with us now as we enter into your um, word to thinking and wrestling with it. I pray that you would be near to us as you were to, to Daniel in our text this morning. Be with all of us, Lord, sinners, as we sit under your word, that we might be attentive to it. And be with me, a sinner, as I proclaim it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So things aren't always what they seem. In January of 1973, for example. I was thinking about this because I've been reading a book about it and because of just current events in general in America. But in January of 1973, Richard Nixon had just won the presidency for the second time. And I mean totally won it, all right, for those of you born after that time. Um, Nixon had 520 electoral votes, and McGovern, his opponent, had 17 Nixon had 61% of the electoral map. It was all red except for Maryland and Washington, D.C. And 20 months later, Nixon resigns in disgrace. Already behind the scenes, right, back in January of 1973, the wheels were starting to come off. In June of 72, five men, including a couple of Republican operatives, had broken into the Democratic headquarters and tried to install wiretaps. And, um, and then a few weeks later, Richard Nixon had instructed the FBI not to investigate the break-in, and it was those two things and the events that surrounded them that ultimately led to his fall. But the thing is, and I don't tell that story, I guess, to, to comment on anything currently politically, but the thing that that story reminds me of is it's really hard from the outside and the present to know what's coming in the future, right? Things aren't always what they seem. We just had an election, And some of us are happy with the outcome, and some of us are unhappy. Some of us feel fearful. A lot of us feel relieved (laughs) that it's over. Um, but, um, But we've been talking about the last few weeks the idea of God's kingdom. And I want to just leave us, as this election is now over, and we're not looking forward to it but back, with that sense that things aren't always what they seem. We've been discussing sort of a Christian view of politics in the big sense, right? Not in terms of American politics, but in terms of God and his kingdom and our citizenship there, but our calls to submit and pray for and honor those in authority. And those realities are meant to teach us part of how to live in God's kingdom, but I want us to take a step even further back and just reflect this morning on that reality of the kingdom. That reality of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is on the one hand something we look forward to, But it is also something that is a present reality. A present reality. So in Luke 17, for example, the Pharisees ask Jesus when the kingdom of God is going to come. And Jesus says this. He says, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something you can observe. Nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And what becomes clear as that story goes on is what Jesus means is that the kingdom of God is in your midst Because I'm in your midst, and I am the king. So things aren't always what they seem. On the one hand, we still live in a world that looks a lot like the world that Jesus lived in. There are still kings, and emperors, and wars, and fear, and persecution, and injustice. There are still elections that we sometimes like the outcome of, and sometimes don't. 
But Scripture says that we need the vision, regardless of how we feel about the present, to see what's really happening behind it all. That the kingdom is here, and that because of that, everything is changing. Which brings us to this text in Daniel. So let's set the stage, all right? Israel, God's people, is in exile. They've been conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian empire. And that empire stretched across what was for Israel the known world. Jerusalem had been plundered, its best and brightest carried into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is ascendant and ruling with an iron scepter. But Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And not an ordinary kind of dream, right? Not like where zombie bears are chasing you while everyone's laughing at you because you forgot to put your pants on or whatever it is that you guys dream about. But, <laughs> but a dream that stuck with him, right? Something that was clear, something that seemed to be a vision from God. And Nebuchadnezzar is desperate for someone to tell him what's going on in that dream. But he's also savvy enough to know that if he just calls his wise men in and tells him the dream, that they're going to do the kind of, you know, like, like weird, mushy, horoscope kind of interpretation of the dream that sounds okay, but that doesn't actually mean anything. And he really wants to know what it means. So what he does is he calls them in and says, so listen, you're going to tell me what dream I had, and then you're going to tell me the interpretation of it. And unsurprisingly, they can't do that. And so um, Nebuchadnezzar commands that all the wise men in the land be killed. And um, this very junior wise man, who was one of those Israelites led into exile named Daniel, um, hears about this and prays to God and then comes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells him the dream and and interprets it. And here's the dream, right? We heard about it in our text. Nebuchadnezzar has this vision, and he sees this giant statue. He's kind of got a thing for statues. A couple chapters later, he's going to build one of himself. But this, this giant statue, and it's got a head of gold, and its shoulders and arms are made of silver, and its belly is made of bronze, and its legs are iron, and its feet are iron mixed with clay. And he sees this statue, and then he sees this rock up here, and it's like a boulder, right? Not like a, a rock that people had carved or whatever, but this boulder, and it smashes into the statue, and knocks it over and obliterates it, smashes it to dust, and then that boulder somehow sinks into the ground and starts to grow until it becomes a mountain the size of the planet, which is a weird vision. We got to hear in the scripture reading the interpretation, and I feel like that always takes the edge off, but if you didn't have the interpretation and you had had this dream, you would, like Nebuchadnezzar, would probably be like, what in the world is going on here? And Daniel explains it to him. And within that explanation, we see why that vision is significant. It's significant because it's saying that things aren't always what they seem. It's pulling back the curtain for Nebuchadnezzar, letting him see the reality of the story that he is ruling in. And it's meant to pull back the curtain for us as well and show us the reality of the world. So this morning I want us to work through that explanation for the vision. Um, And see what it seeks to teach us about the world and the kingdom of God. We're going to work through what Daniel says it means. And from it, we learn three realities about the kingdom. Three realities. First, that the kingdom comes from outside the world. Second, that the kingdom overcomes the world. And third, that the kingdom comes to fill the world. It comes from outside the world. It overcomes the world. And it comes to fill the world. First, the kingdom comes from outside the world. It comes from outside the power structures and the political kind of entities in which men hope. 
So Daniel starts by explaining the statue. He says there's a statue of different parts. This is a super awesome children's Bible illustration, but it's the best one I could find. Um, And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar in verse 38, you were the head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar represents the head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian empire that he leads, and this empire stretches across the whole of the known world for those people at that time. But Daniel says that kingdom's not going to last forever. Another kingdom's going to arise and take its place, which actually happened really soon. Nebuchadnezzar dies in 562, and I know I'm going to let the historian in me come out just a little bit. I'm sorry. But 19 years later, 19 years after he dies, Babylon falls, and now the Medo-Persian Empire rules the Middle East. Um, And we're not going to go into all the details, but they rule that whole kind of same region of the world. So most commentators take that empire to be the arms and chest of silver. And then in 334, after a couple hundred years, that empire falls to Alexander the Great, and Greece takes over and runs the show for a while. And so that seems like the belly and thigh of bronze. And then um, Rome ultimately conquers Greece and takes over and rules, and that seems to be the legs of iron, and ultimately Rome kind of fragments. There is no great empire in that part of the world anymore. There's just little offshoots of that Roman state, so we have iron mixed with clay. And that's That's historically interesting to me. I guess it probably isn't to a lot of you. But it also is saying something important. Daniel is saying that Nebuchadnezzar is seeing a picture of the powers of this world. That this statue and the kingdom it represents is standing in for political power in a general way. And there's two things to notice about that, even before we get to what happens to the statue. The first is that no political power lasts. Each kingdom ends up falling to another. In his day, Nebuchadnezzar looks invincible... And 20 years later, his empire would fall. And second, it seems to argue that political powers naturally tend to decay. Daniel is picturing a downward progression in many ways, right? From gold to silver to bronze to iron. And I don't think we need to read anything too specific into those materials, but the point is clearly that they're getting sort of less valuable, although stronger, which is meant to teach us something about politics, right? It's always promising us this better world. Like we said two weeks ago, it all tends towards utopianism. But it can't deliver that kind of healed world. You don't start with iron and end up with gold. It tends to go in the other direction. Both of which mean, of course, again, before we get to what happens to the statue, that we shouldn't place too much hope in that statue. That will be obvious in a minute. But if humanity has any hope for redemption, right, we should already see that it doesn't lie within that kind of process that Daniel's picturing. Which doesn't mean that there isn't real short-term benefit to be found in political things. It's fine to serve our neighbors and seek the common good, but it does mean that we need to have a deeper hope than those things if we're going to have kind of hope for the long term. In the end, all that will be left of Babylon and Rome and America and the UK and China and every power that exists today is what Shelley pictures in this poem that's actually inspired by this passage from Daniel. This, this head of a statue out in the desert with the inscription, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. And just sand dunes as far as the eye can see around it. So we have this picture of the kingdoms of the world. But then another kingdom enters the scene, right? There's this rock, remember, uncut by human hands. And here's how Daniel describes that rock. He says, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, not by human hands. So there's one more kingdom. 
And on the one hand, it's not a very impressive kingdom to look at from the outside, right? It's a rock, and not even like some carved or, you know, cut rock for a building, but just like, just like a big piece, a big hunk of stone. But it's also significant because it represents a force from another direction in the story, right? We have this sort of natural progression in the statue, and then somehow from outside of that natural progression, another kingdom breaks in. And that kingdom, Daniel says, is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We'll talk about that rock in just a minute. But let's just note before we do the most basic fact about it, which is that it comes from outside the usual order of the world. It isn't a part of business as usual. It isn't just another one of those passing empires. Indeed, as Daniel notes at the end of verse 44, it is a kingdom that will endure forever. A kingdom from outside the normal structures of this world. This is a really crucial difference between Christianity and every human religion and philosophy. Man-made religion and man-made philosophy are always about us doing something to get to our version of heaven. We're good enough people, or we observe enough rituals, or say enough prayers in the case of religion. We make enough scientific discoveries, or get society on the right script in the, in the world of philosophy. We do something, right? And we will create a kingdom of peace and health and gladness. Every human religion and philosophy is like that. Whether you're looking to our church attendance, or our political party, our social activism, or our discoveries... We're looking at something that we do to get us there. Something that's somehow within the current structure of the world to lift us into a better world. But Christianity insists that that hope doesn't rest with us or this world at all. That we have an alien hope. A hope from outside the world. Christianity is about heaven descending to meet with us. It is about God becoming a human being. About death being beaten by Jesus entering into it, about victory through the Messiah being executed. It turns our impulse to claw our way towards heaven upside down and insists that our hope is in fact heaven descending to meet with us. Our hope as Christians is to be the kingdom of God, and that means our hope must always rest on something beyond this world. We must be looking to King Jesus for our healing and salvation. So the kingdom comes from outside the world. But more than that, this vision Daniel interprets is meant to teach us that the kingdom of God overcomes the world. The kingdom overcomes the world. So look again at verse 44. Daniel says that in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will in self endure forever. It's not just that there's a rock that's separate from the statue, right? It's that the rock comes and knocks the statue over. And not even just like tips it over, but smashes it into dust, it says, that the wind blows away. And here's the thing about that image. That's actually an image that Jesus appropriates to describe his own ministry. So for instance, in Matthew 21, first Jesus quotes a familiar passage from the Psalms about the Messiah. We referenced it a couple weeks ago. He says to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so he takes this image of himself as a stone that the builders rejected, says it's about him himself, 
And then kind of riffing on the idea of that stone, here's what he says in verse 44. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. And that word crushed is the word for like ground to dust, right? It's the word for what Daniel describes in his vision. Jesus pictures that stone in Daniel 2, the stone that crushes the statue, and he says, I am the stone come to do that. So that's the idea, but what does that mean, right? How is it the case that Jesus is coming to smash the kingdoms of this world? It isn't through some sort of visible or violent revolution, right? That's the mistake that many of Jesus' followers make thinking that what he's come to do is kind of rally the troops and march off to defeat Rome and bring in the kingdom that way. And in one sense, you get that, right? The, king, the, the statue toppling over and breaking seems like it could be that kind of image. But in another sense, that couldn't be it. Because what's clear from Nebuchadnezzar's vision is that this stone is somehow coming from outside of the normal order of the world. And that kind of political revolution, that's still really just business as usual for this world. Instead, there are two ways that Jesus overcomes the power of this world. Two ways. First, by disarming them in the present. Jesus disarms them in the present. So Paul, in Colossians 2.15, says this about Jesus' work. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know if you remember way back when we were preaching on the book of Colossians. But we talked about this book, this verse, and we said, here's how Jesus does that. Here's how he disarms the powers and authorities. It said all of the powers of this world, they fundamentally rest on some threat of loss to us, the threat of losing something, either that we'll lose it if we don't support them, um, right, that we'll lose our homes, that we'll lose our wealth, that we'll lose our security, that we'll lose our lives, or that they'll come and take it from us if, they, if we don't support them, right? That they'll come and take our homes and security and our lives. And Jesus is saying that he is disarming them because in the cross, that's exactly what they do to Jesus, right? They take everything from him. They take away his freedom. They strip him of his clothes. They take his life from him. They do their worst. And he rises again on the third day. That the world did their worst to Jesus and he is still standing. That they drove their sword into him and that he was not destroyed by it but that somehow the sword lost its power. Because of the cross and the resurrection, the threats of this world ultimately prove hollow. They can still rage, right? And they can still be painful. But ultimately, in Jesus Christ, our hope and inheritance is secure. They can't take Christ from us. And in Christ, we have all things. So Jesus takes their power away. But he also overcomes the world because of the promise that he will ultimately conquer it. He will ultimately conquer it. Daniel says back in verse 44 that it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but that it will be a kingdom that will then endure forever. All the kingdoms of this world will end, but the kingdom of God will endure. And that's partially, I guess, just a statement about the fact that Jesus outlasts the powers of this world, right? That um, Caesar Augustus and Herod and the people in power when he walked the earth are dead and Jesus is not. That for many of us, the only reason we know their names is because of Jesus. 
but more than just outlasting them, there's a real biblical sense in which Jesus will actually take them over. Not through us, not right now, right? But that in his return, he will ultimately and visibly and finally set up his kingdom. The book of Revelation is this collection of pictures seeking to teach us about Jesus. And many of them are pictures of his return. And I feel like when we picture Jesus returning, it's often kind of cheesy, right? There's like these angels in dresses blowing these little trumpets, and there's like this hippie Jesus kind of like this, you know, in the middle of the frame while everyone kind of looks up and smiles. This is the picture that Revelation gives, one of them, of Jesus returning. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many crowns or diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven... Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. So this is Jesus here, right? The one called faithful and true. The word of God. This is Jesus. And I hope you don't mind if I say this from the pulpit, but he's he's kicking butt, right? I mean, this is Jesus riding out in glory and power and majesty. And here's what happens on that day, right? It goes on, I saw the beast, and in Revelation, the beast is this kind of symbol of worldly power. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. That's an image we don't often dwell on when we think about Jesus. Probably in part because I don't know that I want my kids to see a flannel graph of that or that I want it to be on a coffee mug. But (laughs) this image of Jesus coming, destroying utterly the powers of this world once and for all, scattering their armies, breaking them. We need that picture because we too easily forget where the true power in the universe lies. We live in an in-between age, an age where Christ has triumphed in the resurrection but where that triumph is not yet fully realized. But this age will pass into the age to come. And at that day, Christ will finish the victory he started. And before his coming, no worldly power will stand. The nations and their armies in Revelation, all of them, come out against the Son of Man. All the nations, all the power known by Babylon and Rome, all of the power known by Iran or the Islamic State, and all the power known by America and Europe. All of them come out against Jesus, and he annihilates them all. They're broken in two by the word of God. So cheer up! (laughs) Cheer up! Which might sound funny when we're talking about massive slaughter and birds gorging themselves on flesh. But this is actually incredible news because that warrior on a pale horse is our king, right? This is our true commander-in-chief. He is the one pleading and protecting our cause. So our good is secure. Jesus is fighting for us as he fights for his kingdom. And there's no human institution that can threaten us because Jesus is one and he will win. 
and we are victorious in him as well. So the kingdom comes from outside the world, and it overcomes the world. But there's one last piece of Daniel's vision. And I find it really encouraging, too. And that is that the kingdom comes to fill the world. The kingdom comes to fill the world. Look at verse 35 of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. The first part we already read about the rock hitting the statue. But then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and become like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But there's another detail. What happens to the rock itself? But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What we just said about Christ's victorious return. We need that. But if we only have that, we miss another reality, that the kingdom of God is really growing, really advancing right now. That rock is expanding and filling the earth right now, turning into that mountain. There are two mistakes we we can make when we think about the kingdom of God in the present. One is to think that the kingdom, the church, the gospel is just going to like make everything better, right? That it's just going to fix everything right now in the present. That's wrong. It won't. There will always be suffering and opposition and unbelief in this age. Jesus tells this story in Matthew 13 to picture this age where he says the kingdom is like wheat that's sown in the ground, but overnight people who don't like the guy sowing the wheat come and sow weeds in with it. And so, um, and so what happens is that the weeds and the wheat are growing up together and that both will be allowed, he says, to grow until the harvest. So there's no place in Christianity for triumphalism. The weeds of hardship and opposition and loss will always be thick in this age. In some sense, maybe they'll even grow thicker as the harvest approaches. But at the same time, the wheat is growing too, y'all. The wheat is growing too. It's a mistake to be too optimistic, but it's also a mistake to be too pessimistic. To think of the story of our world as one only of decline and decay and despair. That's not the story either, because Jesus has been raised And his resurrection power is flowing into his church. And he is at work in the world right now. And he will continue to build up his kingdom until the story ends. For a variety of reasons, I think we as Christians, and maybe especially we as Americans in the West, struggle to see that. So let me just try to show you one way that this is true, all right? Because I think this is awesome. We we read these stories about the decline of Christianity in America. And those stories are already kind of misleading. That's a discussion for another day um, that we can talk about sometimes. But, but we read these stories, and what we, what we hear when we read them is that this is the decline of Christianity. So let me just show you something, all right? So imagine, this is what the church looks like. Imagine you've got 20 Christians, all right? And they're all standing in a room, and they're kind of representative of Christianity in the world. Does that make sense? So, you know, from the different parts of the world. So you've got those 20 Christians, all right? Two of them live in North America, in the United States and Canada. Um, Just two of them. And then there are another three from Western Europe, from the UK, Germany, Spain, France, Italy, all those countries that we think of when we think of, like, um, you know, that. And I'll explain the Western divide in just a sec, but three of them, all right? Two more of them are from Eastern Europe, which I separated out because by Eastern Europe we mean Russia and Poland and the Soviet bloc. And 30 years ago, there were zero people who would self-identify as Christian there. There were still many people who were believers, but all of those states, Christianity was illegal, right? Like atheism was literally the government-mandated religion. But now 70% of them are Christian. 
All right, which already should start to tell us that that story of decline that we tell ourselves, it's maybe not just one direction, but that's still a lot of people left. So three more of those people live in Asia, right? And, um, and that's actually really conservative. It's really hard to get numbers from China, so I'm taking the low numbers of about 60 million Christians in China, but there could be 150 or 200 million Christians in China by some other studies, right? And another five of those people live in Central and South America, And another five of those people live in Africa, right? There's almost three times as many Christians in Africa as there are in the United States. And on one level, I think that can be challenging for us to hear because we just don't think about the world that way. We're used to this image of America as the guiding Christian light to the nations, but that just isn't true. In fact, in the last decade and a half, the U.S. has become one of the the highest receiving countries for missionaries in the world. But it's also incredibly good news. Good news first, because it means that whatever challenges we face in our country, the kingdom of God is doing fine. It's doing fine. That doesn't mean that we don't want to hope for and see change where we are, but it does mean that we need the vision to recognize that the church does not rise and fall with our hopes. But the second reason it's good news, and the second this is really exciting, is because things weren't always that way, all right? This is what Christianity looked like in 1900. All right? And I think that's how we tend to picture Christianity looking today. So that's 65% of people in Europe, right? And here's what's interesting. In 1900, the kind of big push for Christian missions had been going on for 100 years. Um, and it hadn't been super successful, right? That's a third of one of those people in Africa and two-thirds of them in Asia. And people were writing papers in 1900 about how the, the Christian mission to the nations was a failure. It could never work. That... Um, Honestly, historically, they were for pretty racist reasons, but for a variety of reasons that people in Africa and Asia would never become Christians, right? Um, And this is what it looks like today. The gospel is going forth to the nations and reaching people and has real power for change, even when we feel like it's doomed. The kingdom is filling the world. And that's just true It's true nationally like that, and it's true where we live as well, all right? That the kingdom where we live has real power. Because you know what I know, regardless of the political state of the United States, the gospel has the power to transform people's lives. It transformed my life. I've seen it transform others. And you know what I know, regardless of the political situation in the United States? The Holy Spirit changes people's hearts. He takes people who are lost and far off and dead in their sins and breathes life and new birth into them. I've seen people who I never thought would become followers of Jesus suddenly cast themselves on his cross. And maybe people think that about people like me. And you know what I know regardless of the political situation in the United States? The resurrection is real. And the power of God that raised Christ from the dead, is at work in and through us as well. That God is moving and lives change. I know those things and a lot of other things besides. I know that there is power in God's word. I know that there is mercy and welcome in Jesus. I know that the church can be a place where we find the fellowship of the saints, that the songs of praise that we sing every Sunday are true, that Jesus feeds us at his table. I know all of those things. And no election, and no president, no act of tyrant, or no act of a tyrant, nothing in this world, good or bad, can change the truth of any of those things one bit. 
The kingdom is growing. God is at work with power in the world. And we can find hope in that reality. All of which is to say, like we said back at the beginning, that things aren't always what they seem. I mentioned 1973, but let me give you another date, all right? 305. You're probably less familiar with this one. The year 305. (laughs) Um, So that year was the height of the worst persecution that the church had known up to that point under the emperor Diocletian, all right? In In 305, Christians were being dragged from their homes and imprisoned. Bishops were being fed to the lions. Um, Bibles were being burned. There was serious fear that Christianity wouldn't survive, all right? That's 305. And eight years after that, uh, this dude, who's kind of a sketchy dude, named Constantine, has some vision of a cross in the clouds before he has this battle on a bridge. And then a year after that, he takes over the Roman Empire, and he declares that Christianity is legal for the first time in Rome's history. Nine years after that height of Diocletian's persecution, right? And 30 years after that, Christianity became the official empire of the Roman religion. Things aren't always what they seem. And look, that legacy of imperial power and of Constantine, that's actually a mixed bag for the church, right? I'm not saying that to say that that was the best thing that ever happened to us. But that story always reminds me of this simple reality, that God is at work in history and none of us have any clue what he is up to. I don't know what the future holds for America or the world. I don't know what the upcoming administration will be like or the administration after them or the one after them. I don't even know whether our country will exist in a hundred years, right? I don't know the future, but I know what the future holds for God's kingdom. I know that the church will endure. I know that God will be at work saving sinners, sinners like us, and teaching us to follow after Jesus. I know that the gospel will keep going to the nations, and I know that at the end of it all, our Savior will ride forth on a white horse, and if America is still around when that happens, then it will fall like all of the other nations, but that we, as citizens of God's kingdom, from every tribe and tongue and nation, will on that day at last arise and come into our homes. Let that be our hope. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father... You reign, and there is nothing in this world that can stand against that good reign. I pray that you would encourage our hearts in that fact. May we ever hope in you and trust in you in this age and in every day that comes after it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.